Hey, welcome everyone to the Financial Independence Podcast, the podcast where I get inside the brains of some of the best and brightest in personal finance to find out how they achieved financial independence. Today on the show, I'm excited to welcome Travis Shakespeare, who is a big time Hollywood executive. He's a producer of popular TV shows. He's been nominated for many different awards like Emmys and James Beard Awards, and he's generally a very impressive guy, but that's not really how I know him. I know him as a friend, and we go way back to the Ecuador Chautauqua back in 2015, which is where we met, and we've kept in touch ever since, and he's a really smart guy that I've had great chats with over the years, so I'm excited to get him on just to talk about his story and some of the things that we've discussed over the years, but more importantly, I got him on the show to talk about the project that he's currently working on, which is a documentary that I'm extremely excited about. I think it's really going to be the project that takes this whole FI thing to the next level and potentially brings this whole FI idea into the mainstream. So for the past year, Travis has been working with my other friends, Scott and Taylor, and they've wrapped up filming and the premiere of the trailer is going to take place next week at FinCon. So it's a really exciting time. They're just launching a Kickstarter to help fund the final push of this thing, and hopefully it'll be released in January or February of next year. So it's really exciting. I'm personally in the film, which is insane to me, and so is a lot of people that have been on this podcast, actually, like Mr. Money Mustache and J.L. Collins and Mrs. Frugalwoods, and it's just going to be really exciting to see the concept of financial independence and early retirement on the big screen. So there's a lot I want to get into. I'm excited to have him here. Travis, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. No worries. I'm very happy to be here. So we go way back. We go back to, I think it was maybe maybe around this time, actually, of 2015. Uh, my first Ecuador Chautauqua and uh, your first Chautauqua as well, right? That's right. Yep. So 2015. Wow. I know. It's crazy. So over three years ago. And... Uh, we've seen each other a lot ever since. Uh, we came and met you guys up in LA and you've come to Edinburgh and we've kept in touch all these years. So it's, uh, it's good to get you on the podcast finally. And I'm super excited what we're talking about. But before we dive into all the stuff I want to talk to you about today, could you just maybe tell people about yourself? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, I've worked in, in entertainment for the majority of my life. I started out actually as an actor, as a young man. And uh, over the past few years, I've kind of uh, developed a career in nonfiction television. Some people call it reality TV. Most of the stuff I've done has been like nature and survival and things like that. My big show on the air right now is called Life Below Zero on National Geographic. I want to dive into sort of how you found this whole financial independence thing and sort of what put you on that path. Yeah, so that that happened um, really when I was about 40 years old, so 10 years ago. And uh, what had happened was my, my father was diagnosed with ALS and he passed away. And I was still $40,000 in student loan debt. I still had credit card debt. You know, I... I came up as a starving artist. So I always thought that like I was going to get a big break and suddenly land like millions of dollars from some, I don't know, movie that I got to perform in or direct or I don't know what I thought. I think I had what I now call lottery mentality, which is very common actually in our culture. And I was broke. My, my dad was a school teacher, as I said, and his pension went to my mom so me and my sister inherited $150,000 to split that he had in a Vanguard Star Fund. And 
So we split that. I paid my sister for half the value of his Honda Civic, his 2005 Honda Civic, and paid off my student loans and my credit card debt. And for the first time in my life, I had like $22,000 in the bank in savings. And I panicked because I had no idea what to do with the money because I was completely financially illiterate. I mean, I was very different from so many of the people that are in this community. You know, I mean, I was a classic financial illiterate, basically. I didn't invest. All I knew is that I needed to do something with my money. So I picked up a copy of William Bernstein's The Intelligent Investor because I thought I was intelligent and intelligent was in the title. <laughs> and the, and it was like so hard for me to understand. It was so complicated. And I was like, oh, no, I'm doomed. You know, what am I going to do? So from there, uh, I just started like searching on the Internet and I found actually Get Rich Slowly. I had been using J.D. and Dave Ramsey's you know, approach to paying off debt before my dad passed away. And slowly but surely, I made my way around to the financial independence community. First, it was either Jacob's book, Early Retirement Extreme, or Pete's blog. I can't remember which. It probably happened within the same week or something. And I read Early Retirement Extreme. And although that book is really, truly extreme and super fascinating for that reason, it resonated with me because as a struggling young artist, that's the way I always lived. I didn't want to live like that. I wanted to be rich, you know, <laughs> but I was good at living poor. And then I read Pete's blog post, you know, the shockingly simple math, which everybody points to. And I was like, wait a minute, this is a path that I can actually execute. This makes sense to me. It's part of what I've already done in my life. All I have to do is apply a few of the new tricks and tips and I'll be on my way. That's fantastic. Did did it change your did it change your mentality at that point? So if you've been living the struggling artist and starving artist lifestyle and probably, you know, just dreaming of the of the big payday one day, to then read a book by someone who's doing that on purpose and choosing that themselves, did that sort of empower you or make you feel more happy with your current existence? I think what I would say is that it made me feel more comfortable with living frugally, I guess, because, you know, the messages are that there's something wrong with being frugal, right? Right. I mean, the messages are, as we all talk about, buy new cars, buy cruises, buy diamonds, you know? Especially and in so LA think, where you are. Oh, yeah. And let me tell you something. You know, I'm a senior executive now, and I've, I drove my dad's Honda Civic for almost 11 years. <laughs> and... I would pull up to like CAA, Creative Artists Agency, and where you can only valet. And there's like Teslas and Jaguars and Maseratis and everything. And I would pull up in my little 2005 Honda Civic and the valets would like turn their noses up at me like, you know, who's this joker, st starving artist, you know, coming to like, you know, get an agent. But then, because I kept the car really clean and it only had like when I sold it, it only had like 66,000 miles on it. They would pull it around all the time. They'd be like, hey, can I buy your car? <laughs> and I always felt vindicated then. That's but to nice. answer your question, yeah. So I felt more comfortable being like frugal. Um, I think more than anything, emotionally, it 
made me feel relieved and like I might have a chance at not ending up eating cat food in my old age. <laughs> right. Nice. So obviously it was forced frugality for a while, but are you naturally a frugal person, do you think? You know, you and I have talked a lot about your frugality, you know, and you are, you typify to me somebody who is naturally frugal. Like yeah. there's something in your nature that you just kind of go crazy if you have to spend more than you think you're supposed to on something. I don't think that I'm like that. I think that I'm more of a value driven uh, spender. So, and that's probably from the entrainment of being a struggling artist uh, where I would have to constantly make choices. Is this valuable to me or not? Do I want to spend my money on this or not? You know, speaking of my dad, there's this story um, in my formative years when I was about seven years old, where my dad taught me this really hard lesson about money. And I, you know, I loved to go swimming in the summers. I grew up in Colorado, and so summers were really a great thing. And it cost a dollar to go to the swimming pool. And my grandma, my mom's mom, who, of course, I adored because she was my grandma, had recently come back from Las Vegas and gave me a silver dollar that she won out of a slot machine. And I cherished this silver dollar because for two reasons. One, because it was a token from one of the people that I loved most in life. And the other was that it had a magical quality to me. It, it was sparkly. It was this big piece of silver. Uh, I had dreams of what Las Vegas might look like. And, and the idea of like money pouring out of slot machines and getting extremely wealthy again, back to that lottery mentality, which probably is an indicator of whether or not I'm truly a frugal person. <laughs> right. And I, on a Saturday, uh, I went to my dad and I said, Hey dad, I want to go to the swimming pool. And he said, he said, great. Well, how are you going to pay for it? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you've, you've got a dollar and it costs a dollar to get into the pool. And I said, well, that's not, I can't use that. That's grandma gave me this silver dollar. I, I can't give that up. You know, I, it's, and he was like, well, you're going to have to make a choice. Do you want to go swimming or do you want to keep the dollar? And as a seven year old, that was an agonizing <laughs> moment that I've never forgotten. But I chose the path of experience. I remember very deliberately thinking, I want the money, but I want the experience more. And so I spent the dollar. No way. Wow. I would have not called that. That's, uh, that's pretty impressive. And uh, was it worth it? Absolutely. And it really set the stage for the rest of my life because I've always valued experience more than like getting money in my pocket. I'll tell you one other thing that's really kind of amazing about that story. I held a kind of resentment against my dad for forcing me into that dilemma. I think for most of my life. And when my dad was dying, he lost the ability to speak. And I, my dad was a teacher, so he was a big talker. And it was never lost on him that when he lost the ability to speak, the people around him suddenly could talk more. You know, mm -hmm. he thought that was really funny. And so did we. And I said, you know, dad, I'm, I'm going to take this opportunity and tell you everything that I can think of before you die that I, that I possibly can. So that there's nothing unresolved in my mind, you know, when you're gone. And I told him that story. 
And he said, come here, I want to show you something. And he had this little jewelry box that he kept money in that I used to steal quarters out of and stuff, like when I was a kid to go like buy candy. And he opened up the jewelry box and he handed me that silver dollar. No way. And he had kept his entire life. So somehow, without us ever discussing that, he also knew that that was a seminal moment in my life. That's amazing. What an incredible, yeah, what an incredible lesson to learn at such a young age and to keep that with you. That's, that's amazing. And so you still yeah. have the silver dollar now. You haven't gone out and spent Got it. Got the silver you? dollar and the jewelry box. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Those are like a couple of things that I kept like of his belongings. Oh man, that's fantastic. And yeah, it's, it, frugality is an interesting thing. It's something I'm still, you know, trying to figure out myself, like, yeah, what makes people naturally frugal and are, you know, the person that introduced both of us to this world, Jacob Lund Fisker from Early Retirement Extreme, he actually just tweeted something, um, like I think it was last week, talking about how INTJ personalities crave efficiency so much. And he linked to this really good article about INTJ personality types. And, uh, and it talked about how they can't handle any sort of inefficiency in any system. And I realized that's, I think that's the thing that drives all of my frugality. But it's great to see you that you take a look at value. And even if something is maybe less efficient on the spending side or not as optimal from a financial point of view, you would still make that call. And I'm assuming that's something that's continued throughout your adult life as well. Absolutely. I mean, it really is my personal North Star, you know, where where money is concerned. I mean, I, I think that my dad dying put a kind of fear in me you know, um, that I was going to be broke because it's very strange. Like, you know, as a 40 year old man, even though I was 40 years old and I had established myself in, in my life to a certain degree, the sense of like not having somebody to go run to in the event of a major emergency, which was what one of the functions that my father had fulfilled in my life was suddenly gone. And that was really scary to me. It was almost like I had to grow up or something. Um, totally unanticipated. Did, did you have any kind of seminal moments like that in, in your upbringing where you had a, a specific lesson around money that, that changed your approach? I, my dad bought me like four or five shares of stock when I was a kid. And this was pre-internet days. So I would wake up every morning and check in the paper to see how my stocks were doing. And I, I remember that because I was so into the idea of like, whoa, this money that we had, we could just put it into these stocks and then it'll keep growing and make more money. Um, so that was a big one. Um, but no, nothing, nothing is as impactful as that silver dollar story, which I'm, yeah, I'm so happy you shared that because that's not something we've chatted about over the years. No. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of those things that's kind of buried in my, my personal story that, um, uh, comes out every very rarely, but you know, when I, when I think about money, I, I'd be really interested to see if somebody did a poll about how many INTJs <laughs> there are in the FI community. Yeah. Oh my, that was the, that was my exact thought. I was like, I need to try to figure out a way to do a poll, maybe just on Twitter or something to figure out how many INTJs there are, because I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's, and it's uh, according, uh, according to some of the things I've read, that's like one of the rarest personality types, but yeah, I think it's a big, portion of the fire community that would be really really fascinating i'd love for you to run a poll because 
So I'm an INFP. So for the people out there that don't know what we're talking about, this is the Myers-Briggs personality test that, you know, puts your personality into certain quad quadrants, whether you're primarily introverted or extroverted, intuitive, or what's the other one? Uh, like feeling, wait, feeling, uh, yeah. perceiving, judgmental, which doesn't mean judgmental, but more like conclusive in your, in your life. Um, yeah. And INFP is the second rarest personality type. Yeah. I'll, I'll link to all that in the show notes and I'll link to the article that Jacob tweeted about. Cause yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting stuff. And yeah, I think if, uh, if I figure out how to do like a Twitter poll or something, I'll go ahead and do that and see if people can, uh, can answer. Cause I think it would be interesting to see, but totally. I definitely want to go back to what you said about value because value is hard for me post fi when I'm trying to like figure out what actually I do value and what purchases do make me happier. And for someone who lets value sort of drive their whole financial life, how, how do you know what's valuable and, and what you should spend money on versus what you should hold back on? Um, I think, I think the ultimate lit litmus test is to always think about your own death, which is a very stoic practice, even though I wouldn't have necessarily called myself a stoic, but, and I, I literally do this regularly. Like I'll, I'll look at something that I may want or may want to do or something like that. And then I'll ask myself, well, if I were going to die tomorrow, where would this like land on my value scale? That's fantastic. And it's a perfect time for me because I just didn't do something. And last night before going to bed, I thought about it again and I was like, I really should have done that. It was a family event. And since I'm coming to America in a few weeks, I didn't fly back for it because it was just a week ago. And it was last night I was thinking about it and I was like, I really should have done that. And I really regretted it. And had I had that sort of idea in mind, which, which I would have never asked myself that question that you just said, you know, like, if, if I'm going to die, should I have done this? I, that wasn't in my vocabulary. But had it been just a few weeks ago, that would have drastically changed the decision I made. And I wouldn't have had the regret that was actually keeping me up last night, which is which is rare. It's not it's not a usual occurrence to be kept up by thoughts. But I was laying there thinking I should have done that. So have you found that you've you've been true to those values like surely especially in somewhere like LA if you're in the showbiz lifestyle that you are is it it must be hard to constantly keep that in mind when there's probably so many external pressures pressuring you into other things <laughs> I mean it it can be uh, I'll, I'll give you an example like last last year like I turned 50 right and when I I remember also when I was around my late thirties or early forties, I found this uh, website of like a luxury safari in Tanzania. And I, I just, I, I was like, Oh my God, I've got to do this. This looks amazing. And I said, someday I'm going to do that. And as my 50th birthday approached, I thought, how can I celebrate this, this milestone? And I was like, I'm going to go on a safari. And it was really expensive, Brandon. I mean, it was not the frugal thing to do. And you know, I, now that I'm part of the Fi community, I was like, geez, the opportunity costs and, you know, I could invest it and be safer in my retirement and all this stuff. But again, I, I, I ran the, the thing, like if I'm dead tomorrow, which do I want? And I was like, there's no way I want to walk off this planet 
without spending three weeks on the savannah in Tanzania, because that's an incredible experience for a human being to, to be able to encounter. And by the way, it's only because of where we are as a society in terms of having jet planes and all those other stuff that we can even like just jump on a plane and do that. So like, it's a very lucky scenario in that sense, you know? So was it worth it? Um, a hundred percent, like no question. But then, you know, uh, I go, you know, to your point about Hollywood, like I'll go like, I like clothes. Like I have a little bit of a thing like for nice clothes, but I don't really buy them very often. And, and I kind of agonize about that because, you know, the difference between a, a $75 pair of shoes and a $400 pair, pair of shoes is real. Like the quality of the products is actually drastically different. But if I'm pressed to go, well, you know, I should get a $400 pair of I'm going to the Emmys this weekend, right? And part of me is thinking, I should buy my own tuxedo. I'm a Hollywood executive. Like, why don't I own my own tuxedo? But I'm too cheap to do it because I'm like, no way. I could use that 2000 bucks to go visit you in Scotland. So I'm going to rent one for 110 bucks off the internet instead. Nobody's going to notice. I mean, they might, but I don't care. <laughs> It must be a danger for some people because that sort of sounds like the YOLO lifestyle as far as decision making goes. Um, so obviously you have to trust yourself to some extent to not go crazy because you could have easily said, you know what, if I die tomorrow, <laughs> I would have wanted to be in a really nice tuxedo for my last Emmy appearance. So is that is that a worry for some people? Well, you know, I think that what you're asking in a way is about holding to one's own personal North star versus the pressures of your community and your society. Right. Right. And that's a huge thing. Right. I mean, I've introduced a lot of people to the fire movement and they just don't take on to it. They just don't take to it. I'll be really interested to see when this film comes out, who is exposed to it that would not have normally like searched it out and then does take to it. Because what I've noticed is a lot of the people that don't take to the principles of a value-based lifestyle, let's say, or an efficiency lifestyle, are people who just cannot let go of the narrative that they've been sold by, I mean, frankly, the advertisers, you know? So yeah, I think it is a slippery slope if you're a person who uh, is more interested in the accolades of other people than following your own true north. And that's something that I've definitely noticed about the fire community. I mean, this is not a community of people who, you know, sort of give a shit about what other people are thinking. Right. You know, I mean, they, they do care about some people and things like that, but they're not, you know, very susceptible to general societal drift you yeah. know pressures no i completely agree and i can't wait to dive into the documentary because i there must be so many other things that you've seen over the last year of filming this that are going to be super interesting to talk about but before i do i want to sort of go back to your story so you found this whole idea of financial independence and it wasn't too long after that that you decided to come to the chautauqua is that right yes that's right and you know, 
deciding to go to the Chautauqua was a funny process for me because, you know, I had started telling, I'm not a person who's like quiet about the fire thing. Like I tell everybody, I'm like, yeah, there's this community. They like, (laughs) they're frugal, they invest and people are like, their eyes spin around. They're like, what are you talking about? You know, but for anybody that would listen, I would tell them. And, and, uh, and then I was talking to, to my partner, David and, and a couple of friends. And I said, you know, I think I'm going to go to this uh, Chautauqua in Ecuador, but it's kind of weird because it's a bunch of people who are getting together in Ecuador to talk about getting rich. And I kind of was like, I don't know if that's, I don't know what I think about that. And then I saw the schedule and on the schedule was a day dedicated to community service. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, wait a minute. These people are up to something bigger. I'm going to do this. And that's how I ended up there. That was my first one. And it's like it was weird enough for me to go down there. But I've luckily met like Mr. Money Mustache and uh, Jim Collins before and things like that. So to be an attendee, especially in the early days before it sort of got really popular online and things, it must be a pretty difficult decision. Um, I'm assuming you, you loved it and didn't regret your decision. Oh no, not at all. I mean, I, that, first of all, that was one of the funnest weeks I've ever had in my life. I mean, we, I was just great. The people were incredibly, that's the people were just so smart and so fun and interesting, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and happy. That's the thing that like always blows me away. Whenever I get around a group of people that are in the fire community, I just have never seen such happy people in my life. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's a, it's a great bunch to be around and everybody's so interesting with interesting stories and goals and pursuits. And it's, it's always such a fun time. So yeah, I'm glad, glad you made it down. We had some really great chats. Uh, I think we had our one-on-one together and yep. uh, just, I just remember just sitting out and looking over yeah, the jungle and just having this really deep conversation. And we've been friends ever since. And we continue to have these great deep chats, which is great. So yeah, no, I'm definitely glad you came down. And that was sort of the genesis for the documentary, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we, um, you know, in keeping with that community service kind of thing, um, one of the things that I find really fascinating generally about the fire community is, and I keep asking this question is what happens if you've got a hundred million millionaires or 10,000 more millionaires that are liberated from, from obligatory work, what can happen in the world when that, when that happens? And the idea I've asked a lot of people in the course of interviewing everybody for the documentary about whether there, whether there's an obligation in some way to give back. But I do feel that way. I feel generally as a philosophy in life that it's not an obligation necessarily, but it's a productive thing for us to share our, our wisdom. I mean, that's kind of how the human species has flourished is that we've shared and you know, paid it forward and things like that. So, uh, Pete, Mr. Money Mustache, you, Jim Collins, and Jeremy from Go Curry Cracker were our, you know, hosts. And when I got back, I thought, what can I do to help, you know, with this? I'm not a blogger, I'm not a financial expert, but I, I make media. And I thought, well, I, I could make a documentary about this. So I reached out to all of you guys. 
to see if you would do it. And you're all like, yes. And I was like, that's awesome. And then the hard realities of making a documentary started setting in. Also, I still have a day job and I kind of got waylaid um, by my my day job, to be frank. Also, I had I had two problems. One was funding the documentary because documentaries don't fund themselves. Um, they don't even really pre-sell. Usually you have to kind of like make them first. And then if you're lucky, they'll sell. And the other problem that I had was I didn't have a an organic narrative to follow, right? Mm-hmm. Like as a story. What I had was everybody who's in the financial community and everybody who's become financially independent willing to share their story. But that's not really a movie, you know? So I kind of shelved the project while I was putting together a, a big TV show. And all of a sudden I hear my partner, my current partner on the documentary, Scott Rickens, on the Choose FI podcast. And I was like, oh, shit, that guy's going to do my documentary. I was like, this is terrible. You know, I shouldn't have put this off. Talk about putting things off for tomorrow. And a buddy of mine was like, well, why don't you just call him and just see what he's up to? So I did. And Scott and I ended up meeting. I was traveling and he happened to be in Seattle and I was going through. So I stopped off. We had dinner and we hit it off and decided to partner and, and the great thing about it was that um, he and his wife had already decided to embark on this journey of understanding the fire community and changing their lives over the course of a year, which formed the backbone of the of the documentary uh, to follow and allow me to like uh, allow us to disseminate the information uh, that we think is essential to the movement itself and the philosophy and, and so on. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. So I, I was looking through past emails because I just wanted to sort of get a timeline of when all this stuff was happening. And before I dive into that, I want to <laughs> tell you one of the emails I came across, which was a Chautauqua one. And the quote uh, was, uh, I did not call in sick with traveler's diarrhea for two weeks and then immediately retire as advised by the Chautauqua group. <laughs> so obviously that was uh, part of the advice uh, some of us geniuses down there shared with uh, one of the attend- <laughs> with one of the attendees, um, and luckily she did. She decided not to go that route. But um, anyway, so I was looking through all my emails, and you emailed myself, Jim Collins, Jeremy from Go Cracker Cracker, and Pete from Mister Money Mustache on July twenty eighth, two thousand sixteen, and that was your sort of proposition for this documentary. Um, and as you said, you got busy for a year and it wasn't until September 1st, 2017 that you ended up meeting Scott. And so that was a whole year that went by and you must have been extremely excited to, to get that project revived after, you know, a week, a year of working really hard at your day job. Oh yeah. I mean, I was thrilled. And also, I mean, the fact that like Scott and I hit it off is kind of a miracle in and of itself, you know? Absolutely. And it, the the funny thing is, Brad from Choose a Fi, uh, he's a, a longtime buddy of mine. And I remember him, he sent me at least two emails um, saying, hey, I met this guy, Scott, he's doing a documentary, he's great, you're gonna love him, he wants you to be involved. And I just kept replying and saying, no, that's okay. I don't I'm not interested because it because I was like, no, my buddy Travis is doing a documentary, I'm gonna be in Travis's documentary. I don't know who this guy is. 
And uh, I think it was like the third email and Brad's like, no, seriously, just you want just have a chat with him. He's a great guy. And it was right around that time that I think I heard from you and you're like, hey, I met this great guy named Scott and we're going to team up on this documentary. Um, so I'm so glad you did because uh, I got to meet Scott and Taylor at I think it was the 2017 Ecuador Chautauqua. And ex- exactly like you, we hit it off immediately. And I was like, oh, this is going to be fantastic, especially since you guys teamed up. So can you maybe talk about how you actually teamed up on this project? Like, like what, what roles you guys each play in this project? Yeah. So, um, so I'm, I'm directing the documentary. Um, I'm also an executive producer. Uh, Scott and I are, I mean, it's, it's a very like small operation. Scott's the executive producer and he and Taylor and their daughter Jovi appear in the film. So you met on September 1st and last year, when did, yep. when did it really swing into full gear on this thing? So they had already started kind of shooting. Um, they had, they had shot a couple of scenes. Um, and you know, I think, I think I, I can't speak for Scott, but he told me this, like, he, I think he was relieved to have somebody else helping uh, oversee it. It's very difficult to put yourself in a movie and produce it and direct it. You know what I mean? Like, right. so I think he was, he was really happy. And, and since they had already kind of started shooting, we just jumped right in. Um, and we, we've now shot across a full year. We basically just finished our principal photography. Um, and we're editing, uh, we've, we've got our first rough cut, uh, as of basically today is our first. Congrats. Thanks. Um, we got a little ways to go, but it's really great progress. And, you know, this is something that uh, myself and uh, my editor, Adam Barton, who's just a terrific editor. Uh, he, you know, we're doing this on the side of our, of our day jobs at Adam works full time in television as an editor. So, you know, all this, most of this has been done on weekends and like uh, short weeks throughout the year. Uh, it's been a ton of work, but really rewarding. And um, we're pretty happy with what, what's coming together. Oh, that's great. I can't even imagine what the process is like. Cause I saw how much you guys filmed when we were together just for a couple of days in Dallas and it was just a ton of footage. And I just can't imagine how you cut all of that down into what a couple hours. It just seems like such a, <laughs> such a huge task. But if you already have a, a rough cut, that's, that's pretty great progress. I would say, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is daunting. I mean, the amount we, we, we overshot terribly. Um, <laughs> But the cool thing about that is that we're going to have all of this extra content. So, uh, you know, we're going to all of the interviews that 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 I conducted, we're going to turn those into like long form interviews that people can actually watch outside of the movie. Oh, great. Oh, that'll be great. Which I think people will really like. Do you maybe want to run through some of the cast of characters that you were able to talk to for this film? Oh, wow. We've got uh, you. (laughs) <laughs> Mr. Money Mustache, Jail Collins, Jeremy from Go Curry Cracker, uh, Christy from Millennial Revolution. Um, we've got Ryan Holiday, who's an expert on stoicism. Uh, the Minimalists oh, nice. are, are in the film. And th- the sad thing is that we couldn't get everybody in the movie. It's just, you know, we're trying to keep it under, definitely under two hours. Hopefully something like typically you, you do like 90 minutes so you can imagine like how 
difficult it is to condense <laughs> a story plus the information of the fire movement and whatever into a 90 minute thing. You know? Well, yeah, every time Scott would tell me more people you got involved, I'm like, you, you probably couldn't even inter- introduce all these people in the, in the 90 minutes. It's uh, I was wondering how you guys are going to tackle that problem. <laughs> it's a problem, but we're working on it. <laughs> nice. um, Vicki Robin uh, has just, remarkable you know she she wrote your money or your life she is just th- an incredible voice jd roth doug nordman you know nords, oh, yeah, nords uh, from the military life. guide yep yeah we also have jocelyn uh pearson from the scholarship system somebody who's really a leader in uh tackling the student loan problem so yeah oh, i mean there's fantastic. there's many more um uh, who all ends up in the final cut uh remains to be seen just because we interviewed so many people but you know i wanted to get as many voices as i possibly could um from the community uh so that we could explore all the different uh you know degrees of of what this is all about you know right is the documentary different than what you thought it would be way back in 2016 when you first had this idea Okay, so here's what's really crazy. No, it's pretty much exactly what I thought it would be. Nice. But that's just insane, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, that's fantastic. The, so you've been able to realize your vision, which is must feel so good. Oh, it's it's just I'm, I'm beside myself that we're even that I was even able to, to do this. I mean, the only thing that like I didn't really specifically 100% know would be who would who would who would fill the shoes of Scott and Taylor? Like, what mm. would that person be, and what would their journey be, and how would that all come together? That was the only thing that I didn't really know. But Scott and Taylor are just lovely people, and and um, they yeah. carry the film really well. So. Oh, I bet. Yeah, you couldn't pick two better people to be in it. I wouldn't think so. No, that's great. And did you learn anything about the financial independence early retirement scene that you didn't know? Like, you were pretty into the scene to begin with and you know you've met a lot of the big players and you've obviously read and listened to a lot of content over the years was there anything you learned through the process or was there any trends that seemed to stand out that everyone was talking about yeah you know i i think that one of my biggest takeaways and i kind of discovered this in talking to vicky robin um was that there's there's an analogy between the fire community and the the 60s the people that dropped out of society right to take drugs and you know reject the standard system and all that the, let's call them the bohemians right mm-hmm. um the thing that i never quite understood which which i was constantly kind of asking myself as i was making the film was who are these people like you and Pete? Like, like what is the common thread here that binds you guys, you know? And I, I realized that there's, there's this kind of like countercultural uh, desire for freedom and a rejection of the standard narrative. That's very similar to what happened in the sixties. This documentary is going to obviously take this thing to the next level. Um, it's going to reach people that blogs and podcasts never will reach. And it's going to open. Can I this... tell you something? Yeah. yeah. It, already, it already is. We, 
this past week, we were featured in the New York Times. Uh, it's now been picked up by Le Figaro, which is a, the big French, one of the big French newspapers. El Rey, which is one of the big Spanish newspapers. The BBC called today. Um, <laughs> and we don't even have the, a trailer out. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So That's amazing. It's in the zeitgeist. And you're very, you're very right about that. You know, um, I can tell you why I think that is, but go ahead. Yeah, no, no, please, please. No, I would, I would love to hear it. Well, I, I think, I think that the, I think there's a couple things. One is there's a general panic going on, especially in younger people about the future, right? We, because of the internet and, you know, we're constantly bombarded with all this information all day, every day. There's a, a sense of insecurity about the future. I think greater than we probably have ever had as a society. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the social safety nets of social security, healthcare, like everything is in flux and potentially in jeopardy. And also the financial services community. Um, <laughs> I was about to get conspiratorial. <laughs> they, they have, um, forced the individual into a position of responsibility with their own financial future. Mm. And we are woefully unprepared to face that because we don't teach financial literacy to anybody. Right. We're taught to be consumers. That's what this culture teaches us. You make money to spend money. That is the whole point of the game. And don't worry about it. Everything will work out. And that's a lie. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a sense that all of this is just crumbling, I think. And so the idea of being able to have some control and some knowledge and some agency over one's own life, I think is very attractive. Now, the question is going to be how much the, the community, the subculture is going to be able to impact the standard narrative that we talked about earlier in terms of the slippery slope of like, well, gee, but I really do want to, you know, YOLO and I need my Instagram picture and all that. <laughs> like, you know, mm -hmm. how much is that going to be able to push in? Um, my goal personally would be 10%. I think that would be radical. Mm. Like if we could get 10% of the broad population kind of on board with what, what we're up to here. Yeah, that would be, be insane. That would be just, just obviously being, having a website, my own, like I, I've received emails over the years and just to see the amazing things those people have been able to do after, you know, realizing what's possible and after starting to live this, you know, life that's more directed to their values and their purpose and things like that, just to see all the great things that have been created just from the, that small subset of people. If you reach 10% with the documentary, it's just, I can't even imagine like what the snowball effect with that from that would be. Have you, have you thought about that? <laughs> I mean, I wish for it, but I haven't thought about like what it's going to look like. I mean, it goes back to what I said was, you know, what happens if you have 10 million more millionaires mm. who are, who are free? What happens to communities? What all can you do that is in alignment with your values that can have an impact on the world? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, one of the hard things about making this documentary is that 
you know, you guys have already covered the ground of like how to pursue the path to fire, you know? Mm -hmm. And so how can we make, how can we make all that attractive, you know, to a broader audience and relatable? That was my undertaking. And we'll see if it works. You know, I don't know. (laughs) It could be rejected. You never know. It's so exciting because like, I, you know, Vicky and I were talking about, um, the healthcare thing. Like she, she ardently wishes that, you know, the fire community as a whole would take up the healthcare, uh, problem in the United States. Because if like, you know, a thousand of us put our minds to it and got really dedicated, I mean, we could literally change that conversation, Right. you know, and that's, and that specifically interests us because healthcare is one of the big problems in the United States, at least with the whole ER, you know, thing. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really excited to think about. And I want to talk more about that because that's something we've chatted about over the years, you know, like living a life of purpose and, you know, pursuing the things that are important to you. And I I really want to dive into that in this call, but I also want to pick up where we left off on your personal story because there's so much more that I want to dive into there as well. So you shortly after the Chautauqua, you you hit your FI number, but then you then decided to buy a house, which then sort of threw a wrench in the in, in the old FI <laughs> number. So I want to I want to dive into that because that was a, that was definitely a value bet. Um, that was definitely a conscious decision. It wasn't like you just ended up with a house and you're like, oh, no, I'm not going to be able to retire. Um, but I want to talk more about that because that I think that was a tough decision for you. And I'd like to hear your thought process on that. Yeah. And to be honest, I still question the decision. You know, I reached financial independence per the 4% rule 25 times and all that um, in about eight years. Uh, That was extremely accelerated because I came into the community right when my career started lifting off as well. Mm. So uh, I started saving I started saving money at a really accelerated rate. Um, I didn't change my lifestyle. I kept driving the 2005 Honda Civic, and I stayed in a rent-controlled apartment that I had lived in for, uh, well, I lived there with my ex. This is a crazy story. People are always blown away by this. I lived with my ex for seven years in a rent-controlled apartment in West Hollywood, and when we broke up, I didn't move out. We, we split and I moved into one room and he moved into the other room and I was traveling a lot for my work. So it kind of ended up working out and now we're great friends and he's like family to me. Um, so that was the emotional part that worked, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, but, but, and, and in doing that, I kept my, my housing costs extremely low. I think I was paying like $700 a month oh, to wow. live in Ho- West Hollywood. That's crazy. You know, and but that allowed me to save a ton of money. So when I emailed you and told you that I was financially independent, that was at my current lifestyle, which was living with my ex as a roommate, um, driving a very old car um, and just really like not. I I think I started feeling emotionally like I wasn't quite flourishing in the way that I wanted to be. So. I started looking at renting uh, a, a, an apartment of my own, but because of the cost of rentals in Los Angeles, um, you know, when you start running the math, it's like, geez, like 
do I really want to rent, you know, like a crappy apartment for like $2,300, $2,700 a month, which is kind of how much it costs here? Mm. Um, or should I consider buying a place? And I looked for a year and a half before I pulled the trigger and bought a condo. And it was a great decision personally. Like, I'm really happy I did it. I'm glad that I have my own place. Like, that all feels really great. Um, but I still question whether or not it was the right financial decision. Honestly, I think that what the regret is, is that it's so expensive to buy anything in Los Angeles that like, I can't, I'm financially independent and I have a, a high paying job and I have a good career. And I, I still can't afford in a conservative fiscal sense, I can't afford the kind of place that I would imagine myself living in at this stage in my life. I'm still living in an apartment in the middle of Hollywood, <laughs> you know, with like, not with like a lot of, you know, it's not a great, it's not the greatest neighborhood. Like, I don't know. I, I think that's where, where I struggle with it, you yeah. know? And then on top of that, it did set me back in terms of me having hit my number. So, I actually just hit my new number again this like a month ago. Oh, nice. Congrats. Thank you. So I'm now financially independent again <laughs> with my con. Right. But, but this is something I want to dive into as well. You okay. weren't really sure what to retire to anyway. So it wasn't like you were rushing to the exits. You have a great job that gives you access to the industry that is your passion and you didn't really have anything pulling you away from that at that moment. And I'm wondering if that's changed since then or if that's still the situation. Well, um, that's an ongoing kind of conversation I'm having with myself. I, I enjoy working. I love making, I mean, making this documentary is like a dream come true for me. It's really fun. It's a lot of hard work. But it's really fun and it's something that I care about. If I could do that all day, every day, like that would be unbelievable. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a realistic uh, proposition just because of the way life works. You know, you just don't get everything that you want every day, right. um, even if you're financially independent. I, I definitely feel the tug of wanting to have more greater agency over the way my life plays out. So when I was a struggling actor, I had a ton of agency over my own life. You know, I mean, as long as I got enough money to pay my rent and buy some ramen noodles, I was free. And I loved that because it allowed me to pursue what I wanted to be pursuing. I don't know. You know, I'm older now and like I've kind of got socked into the system a little bit and mm. Uh, I am a little worried about the healthcare question. I haven't really solved that for myself as like, if I quit my job, you know, I work, I have, I have great healthcare where I work. And, um, if I quit my job, like what would that exactly look like? Do I have enough money put aside? You know, mm -hmm. should I, I don't know. You know, I'm having those struggles, which I think are pretty common. How about identity? Do you worry about that? You're obviously, you know, you have a prestigious job in Hollywood. You're, yeah. uh, you know, a big shot exec. Is, could, <laughs> could you go to being like an independent documentarian and, and 
and how would that feel? Have you, I'm sure you've thought about that. And I, I know we've talked about it a little bit as well. So the identity question is huge for me because so much, because I've spent my entire life trying to build a career in the entertainment industry. And so it wasn't like I had a bad job that I was stuck in a cubicle slogging away and just dreaming about the moment I could break the chains. Like I kind of got to where I wanted to go in, in, in many ways. So I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that regard. And, and just throwing that identity out the window is kind of a weird thing. I toy around with it. You know, I'm not like a famous actor. I'm not Brad Pitt. So like I don't walk out into the airport and people recognize me. So when I go, like I spend a lot of time in Alaska, for instance, working for my, my TV shows and nobody cares about who I am. I mean, nobody really cares about who I am in Hollywood either. Let's, <laughs> I mean, to be real, like, you know, I'm, I'm part of the working class of Hollywood. Like I'm part of the making the maker class. Mm-hmm. I'm not a celebrity. So my identity isn't around that. It's around, you know, what do I do all day? Like, and will I still have the same level of access? So, so with your current work, you get to work in these remote Alaskan communities. Um, there's, there has to be some sort of similarities there between these two groups of people who, you know, one choose to go out on their own into the wilderness of financial independence and then other people who decide to go do that up in Alaska or something. So have you, have you noticed any similarities between these groups after working with them for so long? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that is a common denominator in all of my career that I've kind of noticed is that the subcultures that I've showcased and, and been attracted to are people who seek great freedom. And the Alaskans are the prototypical freedom seekers, you know, last frontier. I don't want no government. <laughs> I can do this on my own, get out of my way, you know, like that's Alaska. And there is a, there is a similarity to the fire community as we've discussed in terms of their, um, you know, desire for freedom and, uh, and autonomy. So what is the plan for the documentary then? What, I know you're finishing up, uh, some edits and you're hoping to get a trailer out soon, but what's the, the what's the time frame and what can people look forward to? Yeah. So the plan right now is we're launching our world premiere trailer at FinCon, uh, this month. Can't wait. Uh, along with our Kickstarter campaign to raise money to finish the film. Um, I will uh, blatantly ask people to please support the film. Making a movie is extremely expensive. You know, we've shot over the course of a year. The edit schedule's about four four months. Um, and there's all this stuff that we have to do in terms of coloring and mixing and, you know, compose, paying a composer and things like that. So we're asking the community for their support with the Kickstarter. And then the plan from there and this is a little bit of a trouble with documentaries generally, but we're going to be presenting it for sale. We're submitting it to Sundance Film Festival. We may do um, a layer of uh, direct sales to the community first um, in order to drum up enough interest and excitement from like Netflix and people like that to like purchase the film. The path for documentaries is kind of, you kind of have to hit it from all angles and hope that something sticks. So um, the, the current plan is definitely to try to release it at least direct to the public by early 2019, probably January. 
unless we get into Sundance, which would happen like at the end of January, beginning of February. And that would change a big part of the way the, the film gets seen. Oh, that's so exciting. And yeah, the Kickstarter, I'll link to that in the show notes. And I'm chatting with Scott right now to figure out something cool that I can donate to, you know, be one of the Kickstarter levels or whatever, however it works, you know, get oh, some that would be awesome. cool bundle stuff. So yeah, we're working on that now. And hopefully I'm sure there's going to be tons of really cool things to, for any backers of the Kickstarter campaign. And yeah, I'm just super excited about it. I, I've never taken part in anything like that before, but just the the production and all the guys you had on on the crew, it was just it was such a pleasure. And I've seen some stills from the from the shots, and it just looks fantastic. So I have no doubt and you guys are great. You did a great job. <laughs> you were in the movie, Brandon. Oh man, that's crazy. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> it was a, it was it was a nuts experience. It was great. Uh, and yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm used to being the the radio voice. That's that's easy, <laughs> not being on camera. <laughs> but um, but no, I, I know you guys are going to make an incredible film, and I can't wait to see the the trailer in a few weeks. The that's... scene with you and Scott and Taylor is so great. Is it? <laughs> oh my god, it's so funny. It's really it's really wonderful. You oh, know? nice! I can't wait to see it. No, it's, it yeah. was it was so fun to do, and uh, yeah, just can't thank you enough for asking me to be a part of it and it's uh, it's been a, an amazing thing to see over the years this thing go from your little idea that was in an email and way back in 2016 and now it's going to be a film so congratulations thank you and i'm really grateful for for your support and your participation and everybody else's that participated in the community i mean one of the things that i've always marveled at with this community is their generosity uh, of time of spirit um, it's just uh, knowledge, you know, I mean, it's really incredible. It's, it's, it's very rare. Well, we appreciate you giving us a megaphone because yeah, we've, it's, it's one thing to put something on a website on the internet, but it's another thing to make a movie out of it. And I think, yeah, your the reach from your movie is going to be incredible. So yeah, I appreciate the, the megaphone and the, the platform to do something hopefully great. And yeah, if, like you said, if we get those 10%, that would maybe change the the look of the country forever, which should be insane. So yeah, very exciting. Can't, 2019 is going to be a very cool year. And before I let you go, though, I uh, ask all my guests, what's one piece of advice you'd give to somebody on the path to financial independence? So I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Oh, wow. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Love it. Let me think about that. What's one thing that I would tell people? Okay, I'm going to tell you the trick, the psychological trick there was actually a mistake that I did that accelerated my savings rate more than anything else okay. in my path. And that was that whenever I got a raise, I paid myself 10% of the raise based on the rule that I think I read in like the richest man in Babylon to pay yourself first 10%. Mm -hmm. I got it all backwards. <laughs> I thought that it meant that I was supposed to take 10% of my raise and give it to myself and save the other 90% in the bank. <laughs> right. And this is how bad at math I am and why I shouldn't really be talking about this stuff. But it worked perfectly because it gave me this boost where I was like, ooh, I got extra money. I can go spend this on whatever I want. Mm -hmm. But I was saving 90% of every piece of future income. And that had a massive effect on my savings rate. Oh, that's, that's great. And yeah, you, you get the benefit of the raise. You get the boost. You get the... And, and yet you're able to reach five in eight to 10 years probably. So yeah, that's great Absolutely. advice. Yeah. That's uh that's one math problem that you should be happy you got wrong. I think. 
<laughs> I am actually. I'm very happy. I feel stupid about it, even still talking about it. But it worked in my favor. So you know, sometimes being dumb is a great thing. <laughs> well, this has been great, Travis. It's always fun to talk to you, and yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you in Orlando soon. And can't wait to see the can't wait to see the trailer. So if anybody wants to find you anywhere, is they can obviously leave comments on the show notes for this episode. But is there anywhere else you want people to stop by? Playing with fire. Uh, co. Yeah. So the 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 film's website is www.playingwithfire.co. Co. Mm-hmm. I'm also putting out my own website, travisshakespeare.com. Uh, if people want to contact me directly, but you can also get a hold of me through the the playing with fire website perfect i will link to all that and definitely the kickstarter too so if you guys are excited about the documentaries i am uh definitely go to that and check out all the backer levels and help make this thing become a reality uh, but travis thank you so much this has been great thanks brandon all right buddy bye bye Finance.